I am pleased to announce our keynote speaker, Air Force Major General Bradley Spacey, Commander, Air Force Installation and Mission Support Center. He leads the headquarters responsible for providing installation and mission support capabilities to 77 Air Force installations, nine major command and two direct reporting units with an annual budget of over $10 billion. Thank you. Well, thank you, and thank you for uh, having me here this morning. It's exciting to talk to so many smart minds. I see a lot of old friends in the audience. I don't mean old like old, but, <laughs> but if you're my friends, you're probably old. So, um, yeah, you know, we'll start off by saying there's two things, two big challenges about being visionary. The first challenge is having the foresight to look out in the future and predict beyond what we're thinking what it might look like. Not everybody can do that. I work at it all the time to try and see around the corner over the horizon and then work towards that goal before it's, it's too late. That's the first challenge, but I don't think that's the hardest challenge. The hardest challenge is the second part of being visionary, and that's getting people to listen to you. So as we look out into the future, I wanted to spend a few minutes talking about some of the challenges we face in the Air Force, and I think you face similar challenges, probably driven by some of the different reasons, but, but some of the same reasons. I'm the facility manager for the Air Force, right? And we've built our bases over time to be an integrated part of our mission, but we haven't necessarily kept up with that threat. When I came in the Air Force 32 years ago, it was the tail end of the Cold War. Some of you probably served in the Cold War as well. Those were great times. They really were. I mean, there was them and there was us. We were right, they were wrong and two great forces poised to do battle on a galactic scale in many movies and many doomsday reporters painted that picture. And as terrifying as it was, it was pretty exciting. Installations at this time, and I grew up on them. Um, in the 60s and 70s and 80s, my father spent 30 years in the Air Force, and it was a great place to be. They were built for war. Some of them evolved out of World War II bases, some of them were built new to accommodate new weapons of mass destruction. But there was everything on base, and it was well-maintained. There was the commissary, although when I was young, the commissary was pretty small. The base exchange and myriad support facilities that our engineers took care of in great fashion. We had security police, air police, when I was a kid that walked around and patrols through housing. It was one big happy family. Most of the bases were away from population zones, so we had to do a lot of that for ourselves. And it was great because we knew each other, we lived with each other. My father's friends would come over uh, to the house on the weekends and they'd have big parties and all the kids knew each other. We built these bases big because they needed to be big. B-52s are big aircraft. KC-135s are big aircraft. C-141s, KC-5s. Um, C-5s are big aircraft. We launch big things out of them. Missiles are big things. They, they require big infrastructure. Well, I was also there when we won the Cold War. I took my part. I plan on only staying in four years, so I think, gee, I came in, we won the Cold War, I'm a war hero, I'll go back. And, can, <laughs> and I'll continue pursuing my original goal when I left college, and that was to be an actor in Hollywood. So, if only I would have stayed. But then, right after the Cold War, this weird thing popped up. 
from a country I'd never heard of uh, called Iraq. And then we started gearing up for my first real war, which was Desert Storm. And I'm sure some of you served in Desert Shield and Storm as well. And we ran off to war, and this was going to change everything. We had evolved from the Cold War. We won that one. We were going to retool to fight this new threat, reap the peace dividend that we got from beating the other major power in the world at the time, retool our force, be expeditionary, back to our expeditionary roots in the Air Force to go clear back to World War I, be light, lean, lethal, push our bases up into the enemy, and fight from those new agile platforms. That didn't really happen that way. We packed everything up, and we went to war, and we built big, giant bases on another part of the world. And we operated pretty much like we did from the bases that we had built for the Cold War back in America. But it started a trend that wouldn't fully manifest for 25 years, where we built big bases that take big maintenance and big sustainment that cost a lot of money. And we didn't think that all the way through, because at the same time, we retooled our force to fight and serve in a different environment. Expeditionary requires a different set of skills. The facility management is different when you're talking about tents and expeditionary generators and air conditioners. And that started this cycle that we saw through the 90s, right? A few more. We won, we won Desert Storm, my second war in just a few years, and I'm a hero twice. Won two major conflicts, and we started adapting to a, a new style of warfare. In the 90s, there were a few horrible things happened. Cobar Towers, USS Cole, and we saw this cycle of buildup after a terrible event, reinforce, resource, retool, work hard to find a steady state, re get back to life as normal, garrison operations, and a little bit of complacency, followed by terrible event, a need to build up, fight a new war. The impact on our installations has been that we've done that each time. We found new things we need to add to them whether it's in response to the enemy first time coming to our shores in large numbers and doing real damage, we add new things to the installations, new capabilities, new force protection requirements, construction standards, and equipment. And we sort of almost field it all. And because it's a rush to the guns, we don't always do the best job of finding the smartest way to field that or to sustain it. And we don't always think through sustainment plans, what will look like in five to 10 years. 15 years. What's that infrastructure look like over time? Well, it's like an athlete. There's so many great analogies that go with sports. And this I'll use myself. When I was young and in college, I was fit and ready. I was like that, that Cold War installation, big and well-maintained, agile and ready for the fight. Well, fast forward after 25 years of adding capabilities without sustainment. <laughs> you start to be a little more lumbering and not quite as quick. You're a little looser, not quite as tight, and your infrastructure is aging. Without a sustainment plan, that can be terminal eventually because you can't keep, you just can't keep up with it. So as we sit here now, we have these big, great athletes sort of past their prime, lumbering around that we have to sustain, competing with the requirement to modernize our weapon system. I was told many times when I'm in the room fighting for installation investment, we'll be okay. We need weapons now, 
infrastructure doesn't fail overnight. And I'd always raise my hand and say, yes, it, it does. It's just a longer night. <laughs> and the day to recover is much longer. And that's difficult to get people to appreciate until it's too late. So as we sit here today, we're stuck with the same problem we've always had. We've got to be visionary. We've got to have the ideas and get us to the future. And then we're going to have to sell them. So it's a good thing to, to start by saying, well, what's that future fight going to be like? Just like Hap Arnold did back in World War II. What's that fight going to, going to look like based on our experience of the Cold War and then our time in the desert for the last 20, 25 years? Well, we know one thing for sure. It's going to have your traditional conventional weapons. If we're lucky, we never go to war. If we do go to war, we'd much rather do it with conventional weapons the old way. Now, we're the Air Force. We put bombs on target. We're very good at that. We're very good at that. We hope it stays to that, and we can use these systems to convince our enemies there's a better way, a better path forward. But that's not always true. We know the future war will have some of what Hap Arnold said we're going to have. It's going to have airplanes that have no men or women in them at all. And they have new capabilities that we're still exploring. But remember, not only will that drive a requirement for an installation, in new ways we haven't had to really think through as deeply, power being critical, connectivity being critical, critical mission enablers that we didn't have to spend so much time before, it brings new threats. Because remember, we're out here being visionary, and so is the enemy. So we've got to fight those threats. So this new installation has to be more capable than it had to be before. There's new capabilities out there as we explore new domains. They used to be just used for looking around and exploring. And it was all good. And we wrote TV shows about them, and we, en we enjoyed it. But as we weaponize that environment and learn how to use those weapon systems, a number of things happen. Installations, which are always the launch pad, are now became, becoming the landing pad. Now, as information is spread around the globe at an exponentially faster rate, decision space for commanders is getting smaller. Hap Arnold had months and weeks and days to think about the next campaign plan or react to the enemy moves. Well, in this environment, decision space is shrinking from months and weeks and days to weeks and days and hours. Some capabilities, some new capabilities, threaten to bring the entire globe into the fight in a matter of seconds. Weapons that used to take months and weeks and days to deploy can range the globe potentially in seconds. In this environment, decision space goes from weeks and days and hours to seconds and nanoseconds or almost to nothing at all as new real threats emerge that have taken decision space almost away. Weapons that can be used far in advance of official declaration of war, in fact, they could be going on right now, they will affect us as much they will affect you in the civilian environment, I would argue. And the difference between those is becoming difficult to find. Being a commander in this environment is going to be difficult. Try to imagine a commander making decisions inside of this decision space that will not only defend the homeland, but take action on the enemy before it's too late. You have to close your eyes and you have to imagine what war in this environment might look like. And this is difficult. This is part of being a visionary. You have to sit back and say, how will this look? Where global combat is happening almost instantaneously. Installation, with all of its capabilities, fighting installation around the world, decision space, 
far exceeds anything any human, no matter how brilliant, can keep up with. War in this environment is going to make us, it's going to require us to think differently. It can be overwhelming. In fact, when I sit around and think of it, what's my role in this? You're torn. Do I just curl up in the fetal position and cry about? Do I hope I retire before it's my problem and hope my kids figure it out? <laughs> or do you do something about it? Well, once you get through, you know, it's all the stages of grief, right? Denial, anger, depression. When you get through all that, you realize you've got to figure it out. It's going to be us who has to figure it out. So you stand up and you shake yourself off. You have a cup of coffee and you open your eyes and you realize we've got to look at installations differently. We have to look at facilities differently. No longer can we think of them as a collection of buildings connected by roads, fill, fueled by utilities that provide a capability to functional stovepipe siloed off from the other functions that happen on that base or in that community. We have to stand back and see that installation, that facility, those facilities, as a single entity that work together in harmony, that talk to each other, that work off each other, that can be wielded together so you can maximize their combined potential. It's really no longer looking at them as a collection of facilities in the, in the military. It's considering that installation as a weapon system itself to be commanded and controlled by a commander like he or she would a weapons system in combat. That's going to require different thinking in a lot of different areas. One of the first ones is data. We've got to think of data differently. We've got to get into the data and we've got to either create or mature databases and sustainment management systems so they can tell us the whole story. We've got to get to the point where they can talk to each other, where each pixel of color represents a facility and we can build an algorithm that can age that facility over time and take data from describing the environment from descriptive to predictive to help us look at the environment in the future. But we've got to get beyond that, right? It's beyond predictive. It's to prescriptive data. That's the holy grail of using data to combine not just facility requirements, the risk to mission based on the installation, but the risk to force based on all that people stuff that happens too. We have to build that data and use it, but that takes different thinking. Remember, visionary, half the problem is thinking about it. The other half of the problem is using it or convincing others to use it. We got to look at machines differently. We can no longer afford to consider machines as tools that we use or that airmen use or soldiers and sailors to do the job. They'll always be that. We have to look at machines about as what they can bring to the fight more as teammates than tools. So they can operate on information we've given them and be semi-autonomous, right? A little bit of direction, they go off and do a job, they come back and report when it's done. That's kind of wow. But we've got to get past that. We've got to have the machines take direction from us, the weak humans in the middle, go off and do the job and learn while they're doing it and find other jobs to do and now operate autonomously. So machines can do what humans had to do before. They can even help think and predict and shape the environment that humans have to do before. And this does a couple of things. Well, machines are very good at doing what machines do, but it frees up that vital manpower to go do what only humans can do. And as those tasks get compressed into smaller timelines, those humans are going to spend more time having to train and practice doing those things that only humans can do. And then we've got to look at those humans differently. 
We can't limit to them to the weak physical structures they operate in today, even if they're fit and young. They're always weaker than the physical environment in which they operate. We've got to look at those humans differently and help them where we can and where we can't help them, connect them to the machine that can help them. And then, you know, the real hard part, this is the one that hurts my head. I think I pulled a muscle the other day thinking about this one. We've got to think about thinking differently. No matter how good you are at this, you're probably not good enough. I know I'm not. It's taking thinking from that linear process that we use. It's very methodical. It's very step-by-step. Step. It's logical. It makes sense. It comes to a conclusion after a deliberate process of analysis. We've got to start thinking about thinking simultaneously with information that comes from thousands of different sources. We don't have time to process it. It has to be developed instantly, be used almost just as instantly. Remember that future war, the decision space is down to the nanosecond. We have to have machines help us do this. We have to have artificial intelligence find their role to get beyond what we could possibly ever do. Humans don't become then decision makers. We'll spend our time on the front end doing some planning to become decision approvers. Actually, if you really close your eyes and work hard, We'll just be aware of decisions and be decision reviewers and then recipients and then the machines take over. Well, we can't let that happen. We've seen that movie. <laughs> so there's got to be a healthy skepticism some, somewhere in there. People do have an important uh, role, even if it's only taking care of the machines. So if you look at this environment, you take all that threat that's built up around the world, starting with the Cold War and how it's evolved now, these big lumbering Installations that we operate on, and I think uh, cities and towns run into the same problem across America. And you look at the threat for us driven by an enemy that is always looking to find our weakness. A threat to other communities could be different. It could be threats driven by growth. Some places actually driven by the evolving environmental conditions around that community. And you try to anticipate what that installation needs to look like, what that, that community needs to look like, and you stand back and you say, well, imagine a place where an airman can walk on a base and they're instantly plugged in. They're instantly aware of everything they need to do, their next job, their tasks, their work center. The threat condition is all known and presented to them, either visually or maybe eventually neurally. And their supervisors, bosses, and commanders have the same information about many people and things where unarmed aerial surveillance is taking place all the time and autonomous ground vehicles are doing their job and facilities are automated and they're all talking to each other where every piece of data that is seen or recorded is put into a big gonculator and machines are always continuously prioritizing requirements aligning resources, and in the future, remember, in a, in a war that's potentially installation against installation globally and instantly, absorbing attacks and repairing the base automatically. Imagine a world where machines are talking to machines are talking to machines and doing all this work, and you're still not there. Because you've got to take it to the next level. 
You've got to sit back and say, okay, now you take all those installations for us, all those communities, and they have to talk to each other. And we have to do this on a global scale, and we have to do it instantly. Now, remember the, the hard part about being visionary, twofold. Trying to think about it, then trying to do it. Everything I've mentioned in, in this, this little presentation, everything uh, that we need to do, the technology exists today. Now we've got to do something about it. That's the hard part. So this really isn't visionary at all. This is reporting the bad news that we're way behind. In the Air Force, we're running very quickly to catch up, but we face challenges in the way that we're resourced, in the way that our installations are built, and the way that we rebuild them. And the timeline's driven to us by law and policy, often for good reason. It's difficult to get out too far ahead of this discussion. As visionary and as eager to apply the concepts and technologies we might be, we all are way behind the power curve. I think what you have to sit back and do when you're being visionary is you got to really look out far and know that, as my, my best friend Walt Disney said, if you can dream it, you can do it. He and I have two things in common. We both like cartoons, and we both like to look in the future. So that's what it is. To me, we have to think differently, but more importantly, we have to act differently and we in the military are tied now inextricably to our civilian communities with so many of our capabilities come from each other. Only together, only working two together, solving the problems and employing the solutions jointly will we figure this out and be ready for whatever the world brings to us, whether it's an enemy fighting us or a world ready to evolve around us. I know we can do it. Thank you for your time this morning. Appreciate it. I don't want to take more than my allotted time, so we have to. Okay, I, I will answer a few questions about anything in the world. I always offer this to people, and they never take me up on it. They always, I get to talk about anything in the world. You know, I was going to Hollywood to be an actor. Is no one curious about that? They, they always, they always ask me about some mundane work thing. Sir, did the Air Force Academy derail your plan to go to Hollywood? The Air Force Academy? No, I didn't go to the Air Force Academy. I went to a couple junior colleges, a couple state colleges, and then I finally squeezed out a degree from Fresno State in California. Yeah, yeah go Bulldogs. It was a tough one, though. I would, it had it not been for sports, I would have never gone to college. It had it not been to ROTC, I would have never graduated college. <laughs> Absolutely true. Well, you don't have to have questions, but I'm certainly available uh, to answer them, and I'll stick around a little bit afterwards. I tell you what, it's an evolving world. Never has there been a more exciting time to be in the installation business. And that sounds boring to so many people. And my fighter pilot buddies often glaze over when I tell them that. that but they don't know the weapon system we're building. They're trapped by, you know, forward is down, back is up, left and right. We're not. We've got the whole world to look at. All right, thank you. <laughs>